When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody, this is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. We're going to talk about how to break story today. This is, I'm Charles. I'm here with... Jason Hellerman here, uh, screenwriter extraordinaire. <laughs> and Gigi Hawkins, director extraordinaire. Do I, I get it. to claim that? Yes. I, yes, absolutely you do. And then we'll be following it up with a, a little interview. So yeah, first off, can we discuss the violence of using the word break for story? How to break story? It's like, are we breaking a horse? Like, exactly. Tamed, like I mean, in tamed, a way, yeah, yeah, a stallion from nature just came into our lives and we have to figure out how we can ride it. There is some sort of, I'm sure, like study that needs to be done in Hollywood. It's like, you're breaking in. You're breaking a story. You know, you're, you're killing you're, the audience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And you're killing your darlings. Everything is so uh, violent. I mean, I think really? there's a bigger case to be made that it's using overly aggressive language to make up for the fact that our jobs is, are making up stories and playing with costumes. Yeah. It's yes. like, so people like toxic masculinity says, no, this is tough. This isn't making, this isn't pretending and playing make-believe for a living. We're breaking story here, folks. Yeah, and it's the business. It's show business. It's like, there, yeah. there's a lot of like aggressive to justify exactly what it's it cut, is. It's yeah. cut through. Yeah. Yeah. It's cut so through, it'll break you. You better have some thick skin, kid. So let's talk about making your make-believe story the best thing it could be, which is really what we're yeah. talking about when we're talking about breaking story. Nurturing story is another way you Birthing could say it. Story? How, how, yeah, I love it. birthing. Oh, that's exactly what it is. This is a birthing story. Let's talk about giving birth to your story. Yeah, carry it for nine months. But you know, like any birthing story, conception's what comes first. But yeah, it's you know, <laughs> I think a lot of this conversation will be if you have the idea, right? I, I think we all have lots of ideas. If you're home for the holidays, I guarantee you someone will come up to you at some point and be like, you know, it's a great idea for a movie or TV show, and you'll just nod and go back to our podcast episode where we told you how to deal with your families. <laughs> but. <laughs> You know, for me, this is a time where I get a lot of writing done, mostly because Hollywood slows down a little bit after Thanksgiving through the new year. We've talked about it on other episodes that like, I do feel like a lot of times it doesn't really come back until February. So this is a, a quiet time for me. How do I get this stuff done? What do I do? Usually I'm not out on assignment or I'm not carrying anything over Christmas this year. I think I just have a rewrite. So again, like not as much to do at other times during the year. So when I have an idea... A lot of times it's figuring out like, well, how, where do I take it and where, and where can I go with it? You know, like you, the first big decision, is this a movie or a TV show? And that's something that I think when you come up with the idea you should have and, you know, maybe you change it later, but I would make the decision before writing. Something else we've all talked about is I just, I won't start writing until I know the ending. So when I have an idea, I'll spend a lot of time 
breaking the horse and finding an ending. How would this end? You know, not necessarily who's in it or whatever, but you know, if you have an idea, how does this end? You guys have, what are your processes? Well, I was going to say, first off, to continue the birthing analogy, I never give birth to a child if I don't know what college they're going to. I feel like that's the most important decision you're making. But jokes aside, yeah, I mean, ending is huge. What's funny though, is I've followed the Jason advice of, you have a couple ideas, which one do you work on next? Pick the one with the ending you like, and then work on that one. And yet, through the writing process, the ending that you think it's going to be before you actually write it often doesn't turn out to be what it was going to be. <laughs> but at least you have an ending idea, yeah. which is better than getting halfway through and being like, oh, I actually have no idea where this should go, which happens, I think, to some TV shows. Yeah. But, but it is funny how, you know, like when we think of breaking story, we really think of breaking stories are very early processes before drafting. It is the process of figuring out what, like, the difference between I have this one image in my head or I have this one character in my head or I have this one scene in my head mm -hmm. and figuring out what are all the pieces that go around it. And it can be tremendously exciting when you feel like you've broken a story, when you're like, oh, that's what this is. That's the bigger view at this thing where I had this little nubbin. And now I'm like, oh, that's this. Yeah. But it is funny to think about how satisfying it is when you've broken the story and how little that story often resembles the final draft. But that's, you know, that's filmmaking. It is very satisfying that moment when you do find the key, whether it's a turn or adding a character that sort of unlocks something. And that's, to me, what breaking story is. Or it's like, oh, we figured out what the piece to this puzzle is. And I remember when I was getting my start after, you know, making the mistake of shooting a short film that did not have story working for it. It was a lot of like sort of episodic, this happened, then this happened, and then this happened, and then they're done. And I was like going through the motions of what felt like story, but I didn't think I really fully understood story. And so I really latched on hard to structure for a long time. And it wasn't until about a year and a half ago that somebody gave me permission by way of a Greta Gerwig interview to start from a very different place to write just a scene from a feeling. And that was sort of like a different way that I was able to like explore or enter figuring out what the story was. So I remember like hearing that Greta Gerwig just for Frances Ha, I think she started just writing a scene of somebody trying to get money out of an ATM and not being able to figure it out and then wrote a different scene. And then wrote a different scene. And it was sort of this exploration. And then looked at all the pieces and figured it how figured out how they pieced together. And and that was something that was like such a refreshing, different way to be approaching an exploring story. And then of course, getting into the structure of it all and like looking at where what's the first image that we're having for this journey that we're about to go on and where do we end, which I think, you know, Jason, you call that out very in the screenwriting book, the free screenwriting book on No Film School. But having both like the structured way to think about it, but then also giving myself permission to like let that all fall aside. It's finding that ebbing and flowing in those two different directions is what lets me actually explore. Otherwise, I get way too in my head about structure and is this working and would McKee be happy with me? Or I'm like ethereal and like way out to lunch and I'm like, nobody's tracking this except for my soul. And that's not going to work either. I think one of the common mistakes when I talk to people that are trying to break or trying to like learn how to write is they, they just go in and start writing. And, and I do think, you know, if you're Greta Gerwig and you've done it a bunch, starting from a scene is a great way to do it. You know, if you've written a couple specs and you're, you know, in the, I'd say like 
not an amateur anymore, like, yeah, go in, see what you can mine up, you know, mine, because I think different processes work for, for different people. And if it works, then you should do it. You know, <laughs> that's, I think, you know, what works for me the most, I think is I'll just start with like a blank pages document and I'll write what I think is the title maybe, or like I'll say untitled, but like the vibe I want for the title. And then I have like some boxes here that I fill out. So I fill out a log line. That's usually the idea I had. Hey, I think this is happening. And I, then I write a goal for it. Like, what's my goal for writing this? And I don't write like Academy Award win. Parents finally understand career choice. You know, I write like, you know. Because you've I'll, given up on that goal. Exactly. You've completely yeah. abandoned that goal. Yeah. You've accepted it'll never occur. Exactly. I'll read one that I just wrote or part of it because I, I don't want to ruin the story. But I wrote, I want to do a Hitchcockian thriller that takes male friendship and talks about what it looks like in the modern world and has a lot of hilarious violence in it. And I, you know, and that's sort of paraphrasing what I had there. But, you know, I write that goal because I think at the end of the day, you know, a lot of, we'll talk about theme and different things like that. But like, that to me helps me find what that is. And after I've written that goal, then I start just going little by little. I write like, what do I think like the opening scene is? You know, like, how do we open this movie? And recently I've gotten really obsessed with opening images, you know, like the, all the Indiana Jones open with the Paramount logo, except for the newest one, which is very annoying, but to open with the Paramount logo and then dissolves into some kind of hill, whether it's a molehill or a mountain in the jungle or, you know, whatever. And I think like figuring out what is that for me? And then I'll write who are the main characters? And I write little paragraphs about them. And by the time I've done all of that digging in my brain, these are things that will definitely change. But then I'm kind of ready to write a treatment or like a long document that basically tells a story and I break that down by acts. And then I go all the way to the end and I write what the ending scene would look like. And I'll write a little paragraph about the themes, but really just like forcing myself to creatively confront things. So sometimes for me, if I'm just writing a scene, it feels like I may be avoiding what that scene needs to do. What about you, Gigi? Well, I have a question about the treatments that you write. Do you ever find yourself falling into scenes or falling into like moments of dialogue? And do you include that in your treatment? Oh, yeah, I absolutely. I don't think there's no form for treatments. It's whatever works for you. I remember reading a James Cameron one for Spider-Man that just like is 85 pages and has a ton of dialogue in it. And it's basically a screenplay. I think that works for you. Like if I scroll down and looking at mine, wish I could share my screen. I'll send it to you if you want Gigi. But basically, like I'll if there's dialogue, I break it out into a new paragraph. So it's like and I'll say like my character's name is Joe says this. Brett says this, you know, like and I write Joe colon, you know, his dialogue, Brett colon his dialogue. You do that way. But yeah, I try to be as detailed as possible. And if I know a sequence of scenes, like I know what my first opening scene is, I like write that pretty detailed. I know how the ending is. I write that pretty detailed. If I'm in the middle and realize like, hey, there's a scene in the kitchen where they're washing dishes and this happens, I'll also write that pretty detailed because my goal with this treatment is then later to take it to my screenwriting software and start breaking out the scenes uh, and then filling the dialogue in as I go. Yeah, I really love that you start with like, a mission statement, as it were. Like, yes. here is the thing. Because there's this, Kubrick had this term, the unsubmersible scenes, which are like the three or four things that you don't change. Because the entire development process on any project is a constant process of iteration, right? Like, you are constantly like, you know, and there are amazing stories of people who wrote like a contemporary written thing and somewhere in development, they were like, no, this is a sci-fi in 1920s Canada. And they were right. That happens rarely. Usually those notes are awful where it's like, what if this was on Mars? And you're like, no, but this is like a gritty real, but so what I really like about that mission statement is it gives you this thing that you're forced to articulate, which is like, here is the reason I am writing this. Here is the core. Here is the beating heart. 
I want to explore modern masculine friendships in the context of a genre thriller, which like fucking love that. Love everything about it. Can't wait to see it. Can't wait to read it. Like that sounds like a great core, but it's also like a good discipline as a writer. Now, sometimes the project will argue with you. And, you know, I'm working on a project right now where the core was noir and there's still noir in the plot, but like it is, the characters are much funnier and I can't stop it. And for a while I was really fighting it where I was like, they they can't be so funny. They can't be so funny. They can't be so funny. And then finally I'm like, fuck it. It's kind of, it's going to be a funny noir. This wasn't the original idea. This wasn't the goal, but I can't help it. They are talking to me. And you want that. You want that feeling where they're characters that are having an opinion and they're funnier. And I, so you, you let it go that way, but it's good to have a thing. It's really good to have a, a, a guide post when you kick off when you're breaking the story. And breaking the guide, breaking what those unsubmersible scenes are is part of what I think about when I think about breaking story. These are the things that no matter what better ideas come in, we're holding to that. Absolutely. I think that the idea that there's flexibility uh, around those guides and that mission statement when you're in the creative discovery process, but eventually you'll come back around and you'll have like, okay, now I'm very clear. This is a funny noir. And it is also your job to then be bringing the team of people, whether it's development execs or your manager or your friends who you're making this sketch with to be on the same page. And you can always come back to, remember, we're trying to tell this story. So whether it's like an actor who's like thrown in a a quote unquote great idea that they just had that like absolutely does not work. Like you can always bring the people back and be like, I love that idea. I think that it sort of is moving us a couple steps away from this core mission that we set out to and to be able to articulate that and make sure that people are also able to articulate. That's also a really powerful way to be like keeping the story, keeping honest with the story because it does become bigger than just, you know, you, the writer, or it's, it becomes its own thing, which is pretty powerful. You could probably do a whole podcast on, on writer's block and we maybe we'll put that on the docket. But for me, when I get jammed and I don't, you know, it's sometimes it's a fear of like, oh, I don't know where I am in act two and how do I move forward? But sometimes it's, hey, this scene isn't working and I don't know why it's working. If I have written out what I hope to be the theme or the goal for why I'm doing something, I always go back to that. And then I say like, well, how do I get that into this scene? If I can brainstorm through that, then I feel like I can write it. I'll give you an example. I wrote this script a couple of years ago, um, still in active development, which just means someone calls me about it every six months and then nothing happens. But it was called Give Me the Loot. And it's a, an Atlantis adventure movie. It's about a father and daughter who are going to Atlantis and figuring this thing out. And I have this set piece. And the set piece was just not working. And they're inside Atlantis and there's water coming towards them. And you're trying to figure out how they're going to get through this wall. And I was like, I just, people would read it. And it was kind of like a place where they would always bump. They'd be like, don't really know. It feels like we're wasting time in this scene. Like, why is this in here? Do you need a set piece? But I knew, yes, you do need a set piece. It's why people watch these movies. You know, there's got to be something fun here. And I kept going back to like, what is this movie about? You know, and now the core is this father-daughter relationship. And, you know, they've sort of estranged. Now they're back together and they're doing this thing. And I was at my buddy's house and we're talking and he's talking to me and he has two daughters and, you know, sort of like loosely interviewing him the whole time he was pushing his daughter on a swing. And I was like, wait a minute, what if? And then I got home and I wrote and now the set piece is, you know, a 60-year-old man pushing his 25-year-old daughter on a swing, trying to swing her over so she can grab the lever to lower the drawbridge as they're trying. And like that sort of fun thing of like, okay, great. Like, 
This is about a father and daughter. And what's something these two people wouldn't have been able to do because he was away being in the, you know, sort of the soft pitch is like, he's been away being Indiana Jones. So he didn't raise his kid, you know? So it's like, you know, while he never pushed her on a swing and now he's pushing her on a swing to do this thing. So you have that sort of fun thematic thing where you bring in like, what's this bonding thing? But also like it solved a problem in the scene, which people thought this is dumb. I don't get it, blah, blah. And instead was able to work out a set piece where she's, you know, swinging, of course, over shark infested waters, but doing (laughs) something, you know, that does feel like it's part of that. I think like the beauty of having that paragraph for me is always the, the ability to go back and say like, what is the core of this? And then finding how that core can, you know, have, you know, live sometimes literally become action. I mean, the, there's so much in what you just said that like, you know, gives me chills. It also, you know, like, look, this is the discipline of filmmaking. That is a beautiful image. And as a father, like the emotional resonance of the idea of like, oh, at 60, pushing my daughter on the swing and like trying to save her life from sharks and also thinking about her at three, like beautiful, like writing, like that's fucking drama. The yeah. fact that a movie hasn't been made is a thing that you just have to accept about this, exactly. right? Like you have these things and like every once in a while you have those moments where you're writing and you're like, yeah, motherfucker, this is it. And then you're like, and then we will see if the movie occurs or not. But like for that alone, that becomes an unsubmersible scene because there's so many layers of emotional resonance in that. Um, and it stays true to the original sort of thing that you have broken. Um, yeah, writing is a, yeah, it's a thing. It's a journey. It truly is. Yeah. I think the best part about writing for me is breaking the story because as you mentioned, Charles, I think most of the time things don't get made. I was talking to someone yesterday. I think I've written 25 feature film specs. I have one made. I have one shooting next year and people are always like, wow, that's a great two out of 25. You're crushing it. So, you know, you hope for the best, but a lot of it is breaking story is fun. And, you know, we joked about like the idea of it's like you're breaking a Mustang, but it, Nothing feels better than probably, look, I've never done it, but breaking a horse and then riding it in all the movies I've ever seen. <laughs> that does feel like oh, uh, when Zorro breaks uh, Shadow, right? Is that his name? You know, and climbs on Antonio Banderas, The Mask of Zorro, incredible movie. Like you feel amazing. And I do think maybe there's something to that. So is breaking a story easy? No, but sit in front and clack those keys and write in your notebooks. And I think when you find that engine, you know, we have all the treatment guides and outline guides on no film school you should check out and, you know, read the free ebook. But there, there is nothing better. And look, all writing's rewriting, whatever, and it'll change. But man, I feel so good. I finished uh, that Pages document this weekend on that Hitchcock thing. And I just like, it felt great. Like I, I walked around with my chin up and my you know chest puffed out all yesterday. And, you know, like the... Uh, I think the real world and the humbling will come later as it always does, but it is good. And the look, the more you do it, the better you get at it. I think that's the fastest I finish an idea. And, and certainly, you know, I feel like the the old timer, you know, the curly from, from, (laughs) from city slickers breaking the horse quicker than anybody else. Cause now I, you know, you feel old, but yeah. You should celebrate those moments too. Like you finish the outline and you know, it's working and you're ready to go to pages. Like give yourself a pat on the back, treat yourself to you know, a nice cocktail or, you know, a nice new oh, notebook, yeah, We have whatever. a whole article on No Film School about rewarding yourself. You should yes. re- reward yourself at every step of the process. You know, when you finish the first draft, reward yourself too, because it's not easy. You know, give that horse an apple. Give that horse an so, apple. So first off, I want to commend Jason for having an amazing cinematic encyclopedia of horse breaking scenes. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like, just like calling them up. Like, uh, oh, like that time he broke a horse. And this, like, yeah. I'm very impressed with your horse breaking. And you're naming I love the horses, horses too. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're like, yeah. The other Zorro. thing I want, the thing I really want to point out 
and I think my teacher is showing here is everything Jason and is talking about everything. I'm talking about everything. 95% of it, you are already writing when you're doing this. You're either in front of a cork board on a wall with note cards up in front of a whiteboard. Pages is open. There's this fantasy that breaking a story is like a thing that happens while you're like searching for inspiration on a walk. And it can. But 90% of the inspiration that I get on a walk or a run, I already spent three hours with Scribner open that morning. I was yep. already, I've already woken the beast up. And now I'm on a run, but the beast is going and I'm thinking about it. But like most of breaking a story is happening in pages, in Scribner, on a whiteboard. Like writing is a thing. There was a thing, there was a, a manager that came to speak when I was at USC and he said, most, you know, most inspiration comes when you're already writing. So sometimes you just start typing. And, you know, 25 years later, I still think about that guy because it is an interesting thing to remember that like you're in the pages document breaking it actively. It is not, you cannot break the horse from the barn looking at the horse. Yeah. You have to get on the horse to break the horse. All right. So from there, let's get on the horse and let's uh, transition to an interview um, talking about all of this stuff. You can find us all on the internet. I'm on YouTube and Blue Sky. I'm at Jason Hellerman on Twitter, on Instagram, on Blue Sky, and then Jason at nofilmschool.com. Send your emails coming. Let me know your favorite horse movie. Sea Biscuit, pretty <laughs> high up for me. I don't know if you'll ever be Black Beauty. But uh, oh, oh yeah, I love Sea Biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm at Lost in Graceland. My favorite horse movie is not coming to me, so I'll get back to you guys. And coming up, we have an interview with Kevin Taylor, who is an indie filmmaker who made something happen in the deepest, darkest, parts of the pandemic and took an opportunity and pivoted into making a movie about people who are in hospice. So I definitely recommend staying tuned. And and also, I think this is our last podcast of the year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And I'm going to say my favorite horse movie, the music video for Knights of Sidonia by Muse. <laughs> yes. It's a great, great horse movie I, right I there. I love Muse. Muse is my ultimate writing music. That's like when Aww. you're in the third act, you pop on some Muse. Power through. Yep. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. And this week we speak with writer-director Kevin Taylor, whose first feature, Last Resort, was made for under $100,000, which when it comes to movie budgets is very small. When it comes to my budget is a whole lot of money. This film is not about Rihanna, but it is about finding love in a hopeless place. And this conversation is chocked full of helpful information for filmmakers who are setting out on their journey to make a film or a short or simply write the first page of your script ever. In it, we'll unpack tracking pages every day as a writer, finding financing and moving the conversation towards your end goal, and finally, what to do with your film when you're done with it. So let's dig in. Welcome, Kevin Taylor, the writer, director, producer, and I see you sipping from your mug, McGill Dad, as well. Yes, that's where my uh, son and my money went to. <laughs> are you are you a proud McGill dad or do they? Have I am. Out? He's actually finished university now, and he did his master's in Ireland, and he's currently over in Ireland now, and he's a scientist. So, oh my gosh! So he gets his brains from his mom. I studied theater in Ireland, and we just talked to the editor of the Banshees of Inisherin. Yes, was- I listened. Oh, great! That I, I'm I in very it- good company, aren't I? <laughs> of course. Yes, exactly, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm curious what like the Irish scientific scene is like. 
I am too. He went over there because, as I said, he did his he did his undergrad at McGill, and he had an interest in geography. And this opportunity came up for him to study and get his master's in in geospatial mapping and cartography and everything, and studying the the sea and the coastline. And so he has his master's in uh, marine and coastal environments. And while he was there, a local company picked him up right out of school and. Wow. The rest is history. He loves it over there. And I, I don't know if I'll ever see him over this way again. Oh, no. Well, it's bittersweet, but Ireland is lovely. And I'm going to use that to segue in to Last Resort, your film that is now out in the world. Congratulations. Thank um, you. There is, a, there, is, there is water in your film. So I think that's our segue. Not bad. Son. Not bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so will you give our listeners who haven't seen the film a little overview of what it's about? maybe holding back on a couple spoilers? Sure. Well, the logline, since I've said it a million times, is two terminally ill hospice residents conspire to get their spouses to fall in love with each other to lessen the impact of their death. And however, things go awry when they themselves fall in love and one of them begins to feel better. I'm really saying that that's the feeling of the film. It's a really moving, personal, intimate film about uh, pre-grieving, which is a term that I only learned in this last year. A lot of people Mm -hmm. who are in the process of letting go of a loved one in real time. And now, tell me about like the genesis of the of the film. Like you, you wrote it, you directed it, you produced it, you had your hands in in many different pots in making it. But where did it start? I guess I had a couple of grandparents go through hospice care, and I always wondered, not only hospice care, but before that, living in you know retirement communities. And I always thought it would be interesting if someone was to find love at the very end of their life and how that would go. And do you hold back on feelings because the clock is always ticking, or do you reveal your authentic feelings, et cetera? And then I started thinking, well, maybe we can make it a little sexier if we had younger people that were, you know, in hospice care and they themselves, you know, met and fell in love. And just the 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 different elements that are involved as both of them are married to, and the effect their relationship has on their spouses, et cetera, because you can look at it in one way, of course, you don't like that someone falls in love, uh, that your spouse falls in love with someone else. But on the other hand, if that is li- literally keeping them alive, what position do you take? So yeah. I guess that's the question I want to ask viewers when they watch is, is, you know, what would you do in that, in that situation? And, and when you found that question that you wanted to explore, at what point or how did you find your way into this story? When did it become a thing? Well, I've been industry adjacent for a long time as I have a kind of a mom and pop video production company. And did a, I live in the Bahamas, between the Bahamas and Canada, I'm mostly in the Bahamas, but I did a lot of work for the... In your video. <laughs> I was like, I that ceiling. I did a lot of work for the, for the tourism industry and the destination here, a lot of beauty shots and a lot of hotels, a lot of propaganda slash public relations for the destination, just getting Bahamians aware of the tourism product and, and how important it is as the main industry here. So I've always kind of been in, in shooting and editing was my thing. And my chops were pretty good. I was able to go out and, and knock things out very quickly with what I did. But I was never really ever given a chance to tell stories. I did some documentaries as well. 
and some creative things, but nothing that kind of came from my imagination or my heart. And so when the pandemic came, all my work went away because, as I said, I was doing mostly work for the tourism industry. And when tourism literally stopped here, I had to kind of sit back and say, well, what do you want to do with this time you have now? You can sulk, which I did, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. you can get to it and start creating. And so then writing became my job and writing six pages a day became my job. It could take three hours, six hours. It could take 12 hours, but I wasn't done my writing day until I had done six pages. I'm curious how you you set the goal of six pages a day and how do you approach that day? We like to get into the nitty gritty here. Are you waking mm-hmm. up at 6 a.m. with your coffee and just doing right away before your brain wakes up? Or are you like toiling around for hours, pacing your, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> mo- like movie writing? Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you asked because this kind of gives me a chance to kind of um, share what I've learned. Now, I've listened to a few other podcasts. And in this podcast, I kept on hearing about morning pages, which are from Julia Cameron's book, The, the Artist's Way. They are, for those who don't know, morning pages are three long handwritten pages every day that can be anything. It could be about, I do not like writing these pages longhand, or I have a lot to do today and I have to do this and that. I'm angry about this. I'm ha- excited about this. Whatever you want to do. So it empties your brain of all the junk inside so you don't think about that junk later when you're creating so i just had to frame it that way that now writing was my job and i and there's that thing about waiting for the muse and everything like that but it's building a muscle it's sitting down mm-hmm. and being in that spot so the new the muse knows where to find you you can't you can't you can't be off doing you know other things when you're supposed to sort of be concentrating and doing your thing now, of course, that's not to say inspiration doesn't come when you're doing other things. But mm-hmm. my goal for that day, I, I, like I say, the came my job was was six pages, and sometimes it would be more, but it would never be less. Nice. That's that is aggressive if you're doing if you're producing that many pages. And and when you were writing the script, how many iterations and drafts were you doing? So were you, were you doing like six pages in order at at a time, and then going back and assessing from there? What was that process like? Yeah. Whenever I sat down to a new day, I would read what I'd done the previous day and do some fine tuning. So I was kind of going as I went. I didn't do a vomit draft per se. So I was. it's kind of the way I edit too. I always kind of go back editing uh, video or, or film. I can always kind of go back and try to fix what I can while I'm there just to mm-hmm. give it a feel. So start at the beginning and get a feel for it as it goes through. So you can kind of carry that train of thought or that tone through your through the story but this particular movie last resort was one of the scripts i wrote i wrote eight scripts during the pandemic like i say it just kind of became my job yeah my gosh okay i was like i was just assuming that it that you were working on this script eight scripts yeah i wrote eight scripts yeah and and it could be something as i getting an idea and because if i if i didn't keep working Gigi, I found that I would start just stew on the one thing. Like I would send it out to people and just wait for the one thing. And as you probably know, that will drive you insane. Oh my so gosh. So I had to work on something else to be excited about to send that out. And then it's always seems to be the way is when you're not thinking about something is when it suddenly gets a little traction. So I think the reason that last resort got a little traction is because it's a, a small intimate story 
you know, people talking in rooms, more, more or less one location. And it was easy to do and it didn't cost a lot of money and we didn't need you know, a big cast. So that was a good first film for me to do for sure. And there's no helicopters exploding or car chases or you know, anything like that. Yeah, that, that happens in the sequel, right? That's right. Last, laster resort. Laster resort. So, so you had, I think that's very smart to be writing, knowing what's in your control, knowing that you, well, it's very, it's a long shot to be shooting the helicopter explosion movie for your first feature. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so were you writing with a place in mind or were you writing more of, I, I know I want to be able to pull this off? Because it seemed like you were writing with a very specific location in mind. Yes and no. I, I kind of knew the feeling I, I, uh, I wanted and the, the, the look of the place, but it took a lot of scouting afterward to find something. So we didn't, we didn't have a location before we started writing for sure. I'm Canadian. Canada is my home and native land. So the Ontario creates, I guess if you call it the Ontario Film Board, brought me out to a bunch of locations and they were helpful in helping me identify some some spots. And we got really lucky with one location. And it was a, a, a friend of a friend from the crew whose family during the pandemic wanted to go up to their cottage on the lake for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. So we were able to get the, a good a good rate at their spot. And it, we just shot that entire, every corner, every nook and cranny of that house, we turned into a different uh, scene or room or location. And and you're saying we who who was your core team at the beginning? And let's start to talk about the sort of financing, pulling it all together as you're doing location scouts, like what that looked like. Part of the sure. Process. As I mentioned, I'm a documentary filmmaker as well, and I have a friend who is a gamer, and so much so that he is the second best gamer in the world at wow. this particular game. So he was going to go away to this to this convention this tournament of this game and he had retired for a while you know he was he was you know one of the top in the world in the early 2000s but took a break to have his kids and his family but now he was going to make his big comeback so mm-hmm. i was said why don't i come with you and i'll document this trip and we'll see if you how you do and if you do really poorly at the beginning and right at the end and that's kind of a rocky story and so he's like yeah okay yeah i'll i'll fund it too and so he said, how much do you think that would cost? And I, so I gave him a number. He's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, let's do that. Nice. So when the pandemic came, this, so much of this comes back uh-huh. to the pandemic. When the pandemic came, he didn't want to go anywhere because he didn't want to fly and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, instead of not getting the money back on the documentary you wanted to do, why not give me some of that? And I'll go and shoot this film and we can try to, to get a return on investment for it. So he said, yeah, okay, you do that. So it was a, a lot of luck, but you have to sort of uh, always angle your uh, conversations towards something happening with what you're working on. So I was lucky enough to, to get some of the funding and I put up some of my own mo- money and, and begged, board and steal to get the rest and came up with our budget. And after that, you kind of put the word out there that what you sort of have, you have a budget together and you have a script, but you kind of need help getting to the finish line, the starting line rather. Um, And, you know, of course, once you have a bit of money, it's a little easier to get started. So a couple of producers, I I kind of put the word out there and a couple of producers got back to me and they were David James 
and Brian Quintero in Canada. And they, they really liked the script and they kind of knew how we could do this for the extremely low budget we had. And Are you allowed to were, say your budget is? My budget was 100,000 Canadian dollars. So that would be about 75,000 US. Wow. So they were able to work with that and get us, you know, our, our crew location and, and it all kind of went on screen because, well, 90% of it went on screen because in the end, I ended up doing most of the editing. And uh, I had another editor kind of cut, what is it, kill my darlings uh-huh. at the end, just to just take another, you know, 15 or 20 minutes out. And then we had a color pass. But after that, that was, that was kind of it. So most of the, most of what we had went, all went on the screen and we got our, our casting done and our, our food and you know, the location, the crew and everything. My cameraman was 19 years old at the time. And he's like, oh he's like a 60 year old man in a, in a, in a 19 year old man's body, but he, he was a, outstanding. Souls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This sounds like a perfect movie for him to be filming as well. Something that touches all age groups. Now yeah. you're, you're at the starting line. You've, you've, you have your crew lined up, you have your cast lined up and you have 14 days in Ontario to shoot yep. film. Mm-hmm. Take us through that. What was, what was, what was your mindset in the moment when you're like, okay, it's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's really something I didn't, I didn't sleep a lot the night before for sure. Uh-huh. And, but I always, you know, I, I, I kind of had the attitude, but this is what you wanted to do. You have to, you know, you have to step up. This is your, this is your M&M moment, right? So yeah. once it started though, everything kind of comes back because I've directed so many commercials and, and TV spots and, and interviews and stuff like that. I always sort of know what, what, how to work with people, even if I haven't worked directly with actors that much. I sort of know how to work with people, which is a lot of what you know directing is, is just kind of finding out the best way to inspire or motivate people as well. Some people need a little kick in the butt and some people need to be coddled a bit. So it's, yeah. you know, it's managing personalities a bit. But once we kind of got started, everyone sort of believed in the script. We'd done a table read. We'd done some rehearsals. So everybody, my cast, were all comfortable starting to live in the characters and, and becoming those people. So we all we all we all knew what to expect going in and and there were adjustments we made along the way but i think we came up with a pretty good story talk to me about one of the biggest adjustments you made because i think puzzle solving especially as as a writer as a director as an editor is something that's so important throughout the process <laughs> especially if you have you know are pressed for time to get a yeah. certain, certain shot or your, or, or something isn't working and you know in your gut it's not going to work in the edit as well. So talk mm-hmm. to me about like, the moment that, a moment that you had to pivot or flex in a different direction. Sure. Well, as I'm sure you know, the AD, while he has the, the production's best interest at heart, he always has one eye on his or, his or her watch. Mm-hmm. So we had to adjust uh, a couple things on set. And instead of going to our forest, and the forest was literally next door, but it still would have been a crew move, meaning we had still had to load everything into to a van and drive, you know, down the road a quarter mile into this forest. So my AD was saying, "No, let's just shoot in the backyard because we shot another scene there. We could just do it in the backyard." And and our our producer stepped up and said, "You know what? No, let's we, let's do this right. Let's go you to the forest." I'm really glad we ended up doing that, but it was a it was a pivot, but it didn't put us behind as much as we thought. And I think we all needed to get out of the house 
a little bit anyway, just to get a little different perspective. Another moment where we pivoted was we had shot every room in this house and we didn't have another house for our main character when he's back at his own home. So we had to find a spot in this house we hadn't shown yet. And and I said, oh, let's just put a tablecloth on this piano and that could be their um, dining room because we haven't seen this room before. And they're like, I don't think so. That's a really expensive piano. And I don't want to put wine glasses and dinner on this on this expensive piano. And so I didn't know what to do. So I, I, I just went in the kitchen and I was trying to think of something. And then I just saw this second kitchen sink they had, which we hadn't shown yet. And I said, you know what? Let's just do some French overs and have the two of them doing dishes together. Yes. I you know, remember. it's something it, they can interact together. And they're not, it's not two people sitting at dinner like we've shown a couple of times already just a different interaction and the the way we'd shot it behind them with the light coming in actually ended up being one of my one of my favorite scenes so you have to be ready for these little happy accidents that can happen Mm -hmm. that it's Mm -hmm. it's interesting because watching it i i did assume i was like oh it's i wonder like what the logistics of moving around to get a, a scene that's out of the house would be and like is that something that you guys did as sort of like the fi- the last part or in the very beginning, but it, you kept it all in one place, which is very smart. And and you speak yeah. about this like healthy creative tension on set that needs to happen with all roles, whether it's AD with their eyes on our, their watches or or even you know uh, a producer who's feeling the pressure to 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 move on. But but you were able to also protect what what you needed or lean on other folks to step up. When, when you needed that protection as well, which I think is something important to remember. I, I see there's a spectrum of when we're as indie film creators. There's sometimes the people who have zero perspective on like the human HR people operations element. And so they're pushing, pushing, pushing and burning people out. And then there's the opposite. And I'm like an empath. I have a feeling you are too. Really mm-hmm. good with people. And, and we're like, well, is everyone happy and warm and, yes. and comfortable? And sometimes we do need to push for discomfort. And I think it's important to acknowledge that that is important too, as long as you're not being an asshole, um, which sometimes if you don't think you're being an asshole, maybe you are. So talk to me mm-hmm. about that. Okay, so so you t- take us through the last day of shooting. Like, what was that? What was your martini shot? What was that <laughs> moment? Well, you talked about making adjustments and it was our last shot when we went to, I had another friend that lived in the area and we did a, we needed a subdivision. The house we shot in was out in the country, mm-hmm. but we needed a subdivision for him to come out of the driveway and, and speak in his run. So we had a friend that lived in, in the town we were shooting in and we used her garage as our little base camp. And I was going to have a scene where the garage opened and he was going to be like revealed to be like standing there, like I'm mm-hmm. Superman doing that. and. And we got him running out of the yard or out of his driveway and down the road. And we had a perfect light behind him. And the snow was coming down uh, uh, perfectly. It was just a, a magical shot. And then the guy started setting up in the garage for this one shot. And we couldn't coordinate the garage. And the, and the light coming out of the garage wasn't very good. And it was a, you know, when you get the flicker from the different type of bulb in the garage. The, the, the fluorescent. Fluorescence, thank you. Yes. And it just wasn't working. I said, you know what, guys? And they're like, what? I said, that's a wrap. Let's wrap it. Ah. And they were so excited. And I thought, yeah, we got it. And I know as an editor, you kind of know when you have it. You know what you need. And you know, I wasn't a stickler for coverage because the long take helped us a lot. We did a lot of oneers. 
And thanks to my actors who were able to live in those characters and as sometimes they went off script a little bit, but they always brought it back to what I was saying. And a lot of times, like, yeah, I think that's fine. Sometimes we'd have to sneak a little cutaway or, or a little bit of coverage, but a lot of those, especially the, especially their walks, ended mm. up just being oneers that were, you know, sometimes very magical when they're when you can see the whole conversation in one shot. I sometimes think there's a, there's magic in those in those moments. Absolutely, that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently because. I'm obsessed with Triangle of Sadness, the film, which I'm mm-hmm. seeing a, a live reading for tonight with a bunch of actors coming in. Oh, wow. It wins the Oscar. So just putting that out there. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something really powerful in letting something unfold in the frame and having the trust that it will unfold in the frame. So when you were doing these oneers, how, when you were setting up for them, like, what was, was it very rehearsal based? Was it, you know, I, I do, I, there's, there's subtle movement with camera, but it, you're not doing like, you know, children of men wonders, but it, it, I think you prioritize letting performance unfold and letting these people live in these shots. So yeah, what was the rehearsal process and setting up for those? Like, yeah, a lot of times it was just kind of getting the the right sort of long shot for an example, like examples was, was the Florida shot when they're walking down the under that canopy of the bright foliage, fall foliage. Mm-hmm. And another one was when they're out in sort of a, a farmer's field doing their their walk. And we just love the shot so much and just wanted them to kind of inhabit that space. And just the two of them looking small in this big space kind of made a nice sort of tableau and it was their own magical space. So I didn't want to I didn't want to be too precise and I didn't want to, you know, be, it to be too perfect. And they were if there was a little pause or hitch before they said their line that was okay too because that's how we really talk to each other yeah Yeah. so yeah i I wasn't too and also you know i i can't lie a lot of it was time was a time issue too so a lot of these wonders will save you a lot of time rather than say okay time to flip over the world and do it the other direction you do these wonders and you know save yourself with a couple of pieces of coverage to really keep it moving but you gotta kind of go as fast as you can and like you said we did it in 14 days. So 14 we were, days. we were hustling. Yeah. Were you able to, I don't know what Canadian hours are, but were you able to, like, what was the longest day that you shot? We worked from, we worked 12 hour days. There were only a couple of days where we ran a little over and we would just start, just start a little later the next day. Yeah. Yeah. I, and uh, I have to say Nick hours. Smith, our, our lead was in every single scene except for, except for one scene. So he had to, literally be there all the time so he was a real trooper how did you find nick smith for the lead nick smith many canadians may know because he's the 7-eleven guy in a lot of commercials uh-huh. and and i knew someone that knew him I, brian Quintero, my producer found him and asked him what he thought then he sent a little self-tape and i said that's a 7-eleven guy and I, I liked his smile and he had a nice sense of humor because i this was important to me because the, although the topic and the the tone is heavy. I wanted him to be still be likable and light, mm-hmm. and and I wanted people to 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 like him as they as they took this journey with him. So when he sent us the little tape, I was like, "Yep, right away." I knew that he was he was the guy. That warmth carries carries us through. I think he's so he he definitely has that thing where you're immediately like there with him, which I think is so important. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you wrap. I hope you had some celebrations and then you go back 
to, were you editing in the Bahamas or Canada? I edited back here in the Bahamas. We, we wrapped on November the 15th. I stayed for another week or so and then tried to keep my hands off of it as long as I could so I could get that perspective when I, mm-hmm. when I got back here. And then I just started, started doing it. I had to, had to make some audio. We had some audio issues and things like that that we hopefully cleaned up in ADR. But yeah, I got in there and, and started knocking it out. It was the first feature that I edited as well. I've done some wow. shorts and a lot of documentary work, but it was, this was the first feature that I edited. Now, were you ingesting the data and watching everything or did you have an assistant editor who did that? And then you were kind of starting with selects. I had someone ingesting, but I, and I had my, my, my scripty giving me, you know, writing down which takes I like, but when I got back, I still kind of went through everything because although there were scenes that were the interactions that were the best interactions, there were these little shots from some of the outtakes that really, that really worked. So it was really important that I kind of go through everything. And there's one scene in particular when the two couples are having dinner, Tina shoots a, a look over to, to Robin, where you know that she now knows what's going on. But that was her, that we weren't even, we, that was before we had even said action. It's yeah. just this look she gave, and it just happened to be the perfect look but so much of the she doesn't even know it, but so much of the yeah. movie hinged on that little look she shot the other woman, you know, and those are those little moments you can't afford to miss that so you have to go through, you know, as much as you can. And we didn't have, you know, we didn't, we were shooting pretty economically. So we didn't, we didn't shoot, you know, an exorbitant amount of footage. When you were editing, were you full time editing on the project? Like you were full time writing before shooting? Yeah, I would try to do a scene, same thing. I kind of set goals and, and I would try to do a scene a day. And yeah, it took me, took me about, I guess I knocked out a, a, a first draft in about three weeks and wow. then, and then started to shape it after that. The first cut was, the first cut was under two hours, which was surprised me. Then I was actually quite worried. I'm like, oh boy, is this going to, going to be down to, you know, 70 minutes or 60 minutes. Uh-huh. I better make sure I have as much as I can in here. I think that we need to call a spade a spade and name this method, the Kevin Taylor method, which is <laughs> daily approach of just executing and, and keeping, put, putting your head down and continuing to work forward, but keeping mm-hmm. it manageable. Was there any moment in, in the post-production process that you were feeling burnt out on the story or, or, or on the project or, and, and how did you, or, or how did you protect your energy? I guess I can create goals for myself because I also run marathons. So I know that if you start I thinking about, <laughs> I have to run 26 miles after I run this 0.2 miles, you're going to, you're going to go insane. You'll go crazy because it's so far, but all you can think is, let me get to the next mile, the next, then the next mile, then the next lamppost, the next cross street. You have to set these little goals and get little victories throughout your, your day. So yeah, it's just kind of setting a goal and doing it. And like I said, this is during the pandemic. So there wasn't a lot for me to, to there, w- there wasn't a lot battling for my time. Mm-hmm. So the film is available worldwide, everywhere but Canada, where yes. you are from and you filmed it there. <laughs> what happened? 
Well, you know what? It's not available in the Bahamas either, which is strange. The two countries I live in, I can't, I can't watch my own movie. No. But it's available worldwide now on iTunes, Amazon, Amazon Home Video, Google Play, Xbox, Voodoo, Vimeo, YouTube. So wherever you stream, you can find Last Resort. The reason it's not in Canada until March 21st is because we got a Canadian distributor to get some tax credits back, you know, post for our release. So we needed a Canadian distributor for that. So we had to carve out Canadian rights from our worldwide distributor. Got it. And, and that'll be March what, 21st in Canada. It'll be coming. March 21st in Canada. On Bell VOD. Bell VOD. Okay. Yeah. And what was the process of finding distribution? How did you find it? David uh, James, our producer, he kind of started sending sending it out to prospective distributors. And Gravitas Ventures was actually one of our first people we'd sent it to. And uh, they liked the movie and, and want, wanted to give it a home. And we went back and forth a little bit on... I, think, I mean, Gigi, I had to learn all this on the fly about you know what a good deal looked like. And, and the first deal is not what a good deal looks like. So you have to kind of be vigilant and and not not i don't want to say get taken advantage of but you want to make sure that you know in the end you're not going to be left with you know just holding the bag and and a distributor gets all your money and just jets off the can with what you've given them yeah we can't have that anymore Mm -hmm. um so so were you consulting with a lawyer were you on reddit figuring out what to do? Do you have a manager who is supporting you? I don't have a manager or agent or any sort of representation. So this was all kind of uh, learning as, as you go. And of course, you look up on on you know YouTube or Google about what a good deal looks like. And I have uh, a couple of friends that, have, that are in the biz too. People I've talked to about previous projects that I felt comfortable in going to, but say, what do you think of this deal? Or is this doable? And, uh, and most of them are like, yeah, they're a reputable company. But you should definitely sweeten the deal a little bit because it's not in your favor right now. Yeah, yeah. So I think, now, I think if what's the, what's the saying? If you ask for help, you'll get advice. But if you ask for advice, you'll get help. Okay. This is very helpful because I'm asking you for advice. Mm-hmm. Well, I, <laughs> um, I can't pretend to know all the answers, but, but I, it was definitely I, a learning experience. I mean, I, I think you're a wealth of knowledge from just being in the trenches making it. Now let's let's talk about your advice for emerging filmmakers across the board. Like, what are some of your biggest takeaways? I think I think there's resources out there if you're looking. And like I said, it, you can always ask for for help or go find the answers. I'm sure you know about Save the Cat and 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 the screenwriting programs and and books and and formulaic methods that are out there for for telling stories but let me tell you something save the cat really and this is not a commercial for save the cat but god bless the late blake shelton because what what these kind of books do is is give you the guardrails for this road you got to go down so you know at around this point there's going to have to be this type of turn and and it's just going to keep you on track so it really helped me this formula and putting it out my beat board and laying out my story on a on a my cork board, just like they say, so you can sort of see your movie and then just start writing and not writing into any problems down the road. Because the last thing you want to do is write eighty pages and then be stuck and have yeah. no idea what to do. So for me, the best method was to map out a story beforehand, know how it's going to end, and you'll go on tangents along the way, on along the way as you type. 
but but for sure they really helped me and the morning pages man they there's magic you 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 have to you have to get better at at doing everything and boy it, it and i'm not a young man i'm 51 years old and this is my first feature film so i wish i had started this a lot earlier but you know you have married and raise a family and everything like that and you have to send the kids to mcgill so to, they can to mcgill house. university of toronto everything like that so there's lots of stuff going on and you just have to decide this is what you want to do and kind of find a way um you know it's there's there's a lot more resources now for for getting your content out there just got to uh, figure out how to cut through the noise i i suppose but if you want to do it and you and your heart is in it then i think you're you'll you'll you can get there you just have to you don't quit before the miracle happens it's 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 if you if you stick with it you can you can you can get things done and and the more you write and keep at it the better you'll get and you know and i'm not saying i wrote anything that's undeniable or, or that great but i keep getting better because i keep doing it it's a muscle so it's a marathon stick it's with it marathon. it's a marathon exactly Oh, well, that is the perfect analogy for for this, and in it, you are proof that it works if you keep working at it and you just mm-hmm. focus on that that light post ahead of you, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. Well, where can people find Last Resort? We mentioned it, but let's remind our listeners again. And also, sure. where can they follow you? Last Resort is available on iTunes, Amazon, Amazon Home Video, Google Play, Microsoft Xbox. Vimeo, Voodoo, and YouTube's Gravitas Ventures YouTube channel. And uh, as I said, March 20, that's out now. And on March 21st, it's coming out in Canada on Bell VOD. So there's a few movies named Last Resort, which I kind of wish I'd knew, known beforehand. But yeah. if you type in Last Resort and maybe my name, Kevin Taylor, you'll be able to, to pull it up. And when I was in Ireland, I saw that it was on over there. So you either well, check out my movie, me movie. Yes. To the Irish listeners, he's right, you know, you must. Well, it was such <laughs> and a myself, I'm on, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm, my Instagram is I'm Kevin Taylor. I am, like, I'm Kevin Taylor um, on Instagram. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for, for making this film and, and putting yourself out there and following through and then coming on here and sharing all your tips and learnings with us. It was truly a pleasure. Congratulations. Well, it's it's been my pleasure, and, and I told you before, Gigi, between you and and Charles and Todd and George, I really appreciated um, all you guys have done. So it, even if you think no one's listening, uh, we are, and we're uh, thankful that you're able to give us all these tips and and lessons and everything every week. And, and so what you what you do matters. It matters a lot. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm blushing. I'm bl- I'm turning red over here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Kevin, for sharing your experience. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I think our big takeaways are don't wait for the muse, find the muscle. It's a marathon, y'all, not a sprint. If this inspired you in any way, let us know. Editor at nofilmschool.com. We love to hear from you. You can like, rate, subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on the web at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and send questions to editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.